and give them wisdom. John chapter 2, we've been walking through the Gospel of John, and the big idea of the Gospel of John is it was written so that you might believe. That's what John tells us at the end of his Gospel, why he wrote it. It was written so that you might believe, and that by believing you might have life in his name. And so that's why the Gospel of John was written. It was written for us that we might believe, and by believing possess life. We saw last week, as uh, Scott uh, kind of reminded us of through his prayer of confession last week, Jesus did his first public miracle by turning water into wine, uh, using purification jars. And we're going to see how Jesus continues his work of purification here in John chapter 2. John chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. This is what God's Word says. said, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and goats, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons... Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. Father, one more time, we ask that you would bless the reading and the preaching and the hearing of your word, that you'd help us to receive it by faith, and that you would help us through it to have life in the name of your Son. We pray these things. Amen. In 1992, Robert Karen, um, a psychologist, wrote one of the cover articles for the Atlantic magazine, Um, on shame. And he said, shame is the preeminent cause of emotional distress in our time. And Karen went on to describe how for a long time shame had kind of been removed from the literature of of psychology, but um, in that day it was making a comeback. And I think uh, today we know that the idea of shame is pervasive in our media and our culture. And no matter how much some people want to get rid of it, um, you, shame will not go away. Uh, as I was preparing for this, as I was preparing for the sermon, I was looking at different articles on, on shame online. And um, universally, here's what everybody said, it's that everybody experiences shame. Everybody experiences a level of shame. I think if we went through this room and everyone had the chance to share and the desire to share, we could all list things in our life that we've done wrong, things that we regret, things that we are ashamed of, things that we would take back if we could. 
Uh, we all experience this uh, this idea that there's something wrong, and if other people know about that thing, if other people know about my shame, then I cannot face them again. We all know the feeling of shame. But where I think the literature often goes wrong um, is it tells you, well, the way to get rid of shame is just to look down deep, just to look at your own heart, just to try to solve shame by looking inside. And we, the problem is, I've learned this as a pastor, if you tell people to do that, um, what, what people will do is they'll very quickly realize that there are legitimate things that they should be ashamed of, and uh, that actually makes the sense of shame worse. Because, we, because there are legitimate causes for shame. And so the, the idea of just, well, just look down deep and show compassion on yourself is really hard when you know that you really have things that you should be ashamed of, that you, that, the things that are uh, bearing down guilt upon you. When you know that those things are real, to just say, well, just think it away or wish it away, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And so we, like our father and mother, Adam and Eve, we, we cover ourselves with fig leaves to hide our shame. And some of us, we cover our, our, ourselves with a fig leaf of self-righteousness and religious works and do-goodism. And we like to stack upon all, uh, upon all of, all, over our shame, our achievements, so nobody will know what's underneath. And for some of us, we, we cover the, this idea of shame with worldly desires, and we go running after the sins of this world. And, and the problem with that, the problem with that mentality of just kind of covering over the shame without really truly dealing with it, without really truly having it cleaned, it is shame when you know it's there and there's not a solution to it is debilitating. It's debilitating. It keeps you from serving God. It keeps you from. Uh, it keeps you from loving your family as well as you should, or maybe from working as hard as you should. To, to know that shame is there and to not have a solution for it is a burden which none of us can bear up. How many, how many young men are kept back from all that God has for them and the pride of their life because they have the shame of an addiction to pornography? How many people have this shame of something that they have said or done wrong, and it keeps them from interacting with relationships. Shame, to have shame in our lives, is a debilitating problem. And we desperately need a solution. We desperately need someone who can take away the fig leaves of our own making. And so today, I think the, top, the passage that we're going to read or going to look through today talks a lot about how Jesus cleans us and purifies us from shame. Um, I, I believe the passage that we're talking about today tells us that Jesus is our, our great high priest, a high priest who can clean our conscience, who can clean our soul, who can bleach our shame. And so it's with a great joy that we turn to our passage this morning. To know a couple, to understand this passage, you have to understand a handful of things about kind of the ancient world. Um, a good, pious Jewish person would come up to the temple three times a year. 
So for three different ritual feasts, the, the Jewish people, they would come up, and many of them would travel great distances, hundreds of miles, maybe even thousands of miles to come to the, these festivals in Jerusalem, especially for the big festival, the festival, the festival of Passover, which we, we see here Jesus does for the first time in his gospel, in the Gospel of John today. And so people come from all over to come to this festival, the Passover, to celebrate it in Jerusalem. And if you've ever traveled a long distance with a toddler, you know it, it is not super easy. But imagine having like a sacrifice or livestock in tow as well. And so it's, it's not a surprise that many people, when they traveled across the ancient world to come converge on Jerusalem, and Jerusalem more than doubled in size during these festivals, uh, they would, instead of bringing the sacrifices with them, instead of carrying their uh, Bambi all the way from way over here in Galilee, they went, once they got to Jerusalem, they would actually just buy a sacrifice. It's a fairly economic, if you can afford it, it's a great solution. You know, that way you don't have to bring your sacrifice from far away. And you don't have to. You don't have to uh, worry about keeping it fed or cleaning up after it on on the road to Jerusalem. And this happened as early as uh, probably before the Old Testament was finished being written. That this was already happening. There's already this kind of the system of trade that had developed. We we see this from Zech, uh, prophecy in Zechariah 14, for example. That there was already traders in the in the temple by the end of the Old Testament. Um, which uh, trade, I, I don't know that God is opposed to um, this system of, of trading, uh, of, of, uh, of buying a sacrifice once you get to Jerusalem. But the problem was, is that they were trading in the temple itself. They were trading in the temple itself. The, the halls of the temple, the rooms of the temple, that were meant for, that were meant for prayer and they were meant for teaching, Maybe you can imagine pilgrims who don't have anywhere to stay in Jerusalem. They, they sleep there. This is a temple, a house that was meant for worship, has suddenly become a marketplace. And you can imagine walking into this temple and experiencing sensory overload. Because in the, in, in the innermost court of the temple is the Holy of Holies, and then and the rooms outside, and the court outside is the bronze altar where the, the sacrifices would be made. And so you can imagine the panic and the fear of animals that are in that inner court. Is there, they, they, they know what's happening. They see other animals. They're tra- panicking, trying to escape, trying not to be sacrificed. But then you can also imagine in the outer courts where people should be praying, where the Word of God should be being taught those activities have been replaced by traders. You can imagine the jingle of coins and the flash of gold. You can imagine the animals that are in the temple courts that are defecating and they are, they're making noise and they know that death is just around the corner and so they're frenzied and they're panicked. You can imagine this temple that was meant to be beautiful. It was meant to be a place where God and man meet has instead become a glorified livestock auction. The worst part about it was everybody in Jerusalem had their hand in the pot. So there was a temple tax. Everybody in Jerusalem had their hand in a pot. The the, um, Levites and the priests got a cut. The Roman authorities got a cut. The city authorities got a cut. Everybody got a cut. And so there was absolutely no incentive to make this pure. There's absolutely no incentive to stop this nonsense, to stop the defamation of God's house. And so it continued 
for hundreds and hundreds of years, God's house is being dishonored. And so when God himself comes down, how do you think he's supposed to react to that? It tells us in this passage, it says in verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found. It doesn't say that he stumbled upon, or that he noticed, or he walked by. It says he found. It's the same word that describes when he goes out and finds his disciples. Jesus went looking for this. He goes to Jerusalem with a plan. And he goes into the temple. And making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple. Drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remember that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Of course, this is a quotation from Psalm 69, one of the great Psalms of the Old Testament. It was written by David, who was, who was feeling the pressure and feeling uh, persecuted. And, he's, and so David cries out in Psalm 69, don't let those who hope in you be put to shame because of me. And so what John is saying by applying this Psalm to Jesus is that Jesus is the greater David. Of course, King David was the one who wanted to build the temple in the first place in Jerusalem. He's the one who purchased the land. He's the, just reading in First Chronicles. He's the one who gave Solomon all the instructions for the temple. That King David had a zeal for the worship of the Lord. And, and the Jews respond. This is the, the story. The Jews respond. They say, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Notice how they don't. They can't argue that Jesus is doing the right thing because that's indisputable. <laughs> There's no one who's going to argue that what Jesus is doing is wrong because it's not like people don't know this. So instead of asking him, what, why do you think this is okay? They say, well, what, a, what sign, what authority? If you're going to claim that you have the authority to do this, how, why should we trust you? What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple... And in three days, I will raise it up. And we know from verse 21, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. Now, I think when we read this, we assume that the Jewish authorities don't know what he's talking about. I think when we read this, we think, oh, the Jewish authorities, they're just ignorant. They don't understand. That's not exactly true. Um, it, Jesus was not the only, the New Testament is not the only documents uh, of the first century written by Jewish people to refer to the human body as a temple. So probably the best well-known one is Philo of Alexandria, a very influential, prominent uh, Jewish, uh, Jewish Hellenistic philosopher and thinker, one who had a lot of contact with the temple authorities in Jerusalem, referred to the human body as a temple. And he's surely not the only one. So it actually, the Jewish authorities actually probably would have known that the temple that Jesus is referring to is his body. It's not that they don't know, it's that they don't care because they are too impressed with the giant building that is all around them. The Jews said, so Jesus says, destroy this temple, <laughs> in three days I'll raise it up. And the Jews say, okay, well, whatever, Jesus. It's taken 46 years to build this temple. So you can worry about that. This is the temple that we really care about. It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? As they say, in essence, Jesus, maybe you can raise up from the dead in three days, but can you build this temple in three days? 
It's not that they don't know that what he's talking about. It's just that they don't care. Because the temple of the first century was a magnificent building. It covered, the whole complex covered 40 acres. A gigantic, it was, the temple that they worshipped in was a temple that had been renovated by Herod the Great, uh, the, the Jewish puppet king that the Romans installed. And it was six times the size of Solomon's temple. It was a massive, a huge complex. It had people from all over the world. Gifts from Roman emperors were in it. It had money. It had wealth. It was gigantic in proportion. And so the Jewish leaders, even though they don't really care for Herod, they are way too... They say, listen, Jesus, we don't really care about the resurrection. What we care about is the temple. This giant building that this gigantic, beautiful edifice. This is what, we, this is what we're really concerned with, the, the trappings of, of religion. Of course, they were too blind to see that the new and greater temple was standing right in front of them. That one of the themes that the Gospel of John develops for us is that Jesus himself is the greater temple. We saw back in chapter 1, it says in one fourteen, and the word became flesh and dwelt. The word dwelt is the word tabernacled. He, that Jesus became the greater temple right in front of them. And they were so enamored with the beauty of this gigantic building that they can't see that God himself, the glory of God himself, the same one that Isaiah fell down before and said, Oh, I am a man of unclean lips and I worship, I come from a people of unclean lips. They can't see that the same glory that passed by Moses when he was stuttering and shivering and shaking in a cave, they can't see that same glory is right in front of them. That Jesus is himself the greater temple. And of course, this is outrageously popular with the crowds of Jerusalem who just are not a fan of the Jewish elite in Jerusalem. It says, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. So what they, what they really care about is not so much who Jesus is, but what he's doing. So he can turn water into wine, as we'll see. He can provide bread for the 5,000. He can put the, the Jewish elite in their place. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is the story of how Jesus cleansed the temple in John's gospel. So what does it mean? What's the significance of it? I think we can see the significance of this in the cleansing of the temple and in the response, the cleansing and the response. Here is the, I think, the interpretive crux for this story. Um, In the Old Testament book of Leviticus, when God established the high priest over the people of Israel, um, he gave instructions about the Passover, the the celebrations of Yom Kippur, which means Day of Atonement, where where they would kill the the lamb to atone for the sins of the people. And one of the high priest's jobs was to take the blood from the sacrifice and to go and sprinkle it in the temple, throughout the tabernacle, on all the elements, on all of the the instruments and everything used for the worship of God to purify it. 
So here's, here is by extension what the point of this all is. It's the high priest's job to keep the temple clean. It's the high priest's job to keep the temple clean. Just like Jesus was doing what the master of the feast should have done last week, here he's doing what the high priest should have been doing. It was the high priest's job to make sure the worship of the temple was pure. It was the high priest's job to make sure the worship of the temple was clean. It was the high priest's job to make sure that that all of this was taken care of. Of course, the priests were too, again, enamored with the wealth and the riches and the power to recognize what is going on. There's actually prophecies about this in the Old Testament. So Zechariah 14, 20-21 says, On that day there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, Holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judea shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all whose sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. And again, from Malachi, which Robin read just a minute ago, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in the former years. The longing of the prophets, the hope of the prophets, the the looking forward, what the prophets saw is that one day God is going to purify worship again. That one day people are not going to be allowed to defile and to pollute the temple of God. That one day the Messiah will come, the messenger of the covenant, and he is going to purify God's people so that they can offer offerings and righteousness again. And so when Jesus comes and he cleanses the, the temple, that's exactly what he's doing. He's fulfilling his prophecies in the Old Testament. He's cleaning the temple as the greater high priest. He's indicating, this is why I've come. Um, Last week when we talked about this idea that Jesus turned the water into wine, we said Jesus could have turned the water into wine in any way he chose, right? He could have had wine come right up out of the ground. He could have had it come out of the sky. He's God. He can do whatever he wants. But he chooses to use jars for purification, Why does he do that? To indicate how he's going to bring about the good life, the blessings of the covenant. To to indicate that it requires a purification. It's not a mistake that in John's gospel, these two stories are side by side. It's not a mistake because both of them are dealing with this idea that Jesus is the one who purifies. Jesus is the one who cleanses. Jesus is the one who takes the defiled and the polluted and the impure and he makes it clean. And the question is, well, how does he do that? And you can see, just like we saw last week, this is connected with his death. Jesus says in verse 19, destroy this temple. This is an if-then statement. If you destroy this temple, then in three days I will raise it up. How How does he do this? 
Well, he does it through his death and his resurrection. Jesus is the, the, the high priest that cleanses the, the, the worship of the people of God in his death and in his resurrection. But Jesus doesn't come to cleanse a place. Hear me. Jesus doesn't come to cleanse a place. This is a miracle that is a sign. It's signifying something. It's referring to something. Now, as the high priest, Jesus doesn't come to make instruments in a temple worthy for worship. He comes to make the human heart ready for worship. In other words, Jesus doesn't come to cleanse a place so much as he comes to cleanse a people. This is something that the Old Testament priests could never do. But it's something that we know that Jesus does. So from the book of Hebrews chapter 9, it says this, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Which is why John can say in his letters, in 1 John 1, 7, if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. And again, in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As the greater high priest, what does Jesus come to clean? He comes to clean you. He comes to clean me. He sprinkles his blood where the blood of both of goats and bulls and calves can never go, the human heart. He comes to cleanse the conscience, which means this, that thing that you are ashamed of, that thing that you feel is holding you back from serving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, that thing in your past that you hope nobody ever finds out about, that thing that you said to that person that you love, or that mistake that you made, or that way that you cut corners at work. Listen, Jesus came to clean you of that. Jesus came to wipe that away. Jesus came to remove that, to clean your conscience so that you can serve God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We just sang this in the song a minute ago. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Christians, Jesus came to to clean you of that thing that you're ashamed of. He bore your sin on the cross. He he died so that you could be made new, so that, in the words of the other song that we just sang, you could be saved to sin no more. You see, the thing that that the priests in the Old Covenant would come to, to 
purified, to make clean for, for the worship of God, was all the instruments in the temple. It was the gold, the censers, and the bowls, and, and the pots, and, and the dustpan, and the broom that they would use to clean up in the temple. They would purify those things. But in the new covenant, Jesus came to purify you, to clean you, so that you could be used anew for the worship of God. Or in the words of Hebrews, through the eternal spirit, he offered himself without blemish to God to purify your conscience from dead works so that you might serve the living God. How does, how does Jesus, how does Jesus cleanse you, take away your shame, make you be able to serve him? He does it through the cross, through dying in your place on the tree, by taking your curse, your shame, your pain, your brokenness. And through your wounds, through his wounds, you can be healed. So how should we respond to this good news about the cleansing? How can we respond in a way? How can, how can we truly receive this good news that we really can be cleansed from everything that we've ever done? I believe this passage gives us three, three possible answers. Three possible answers. On the one hand, we can respond like the Jewish elite. You remember the Jewish elite who are too enamored with the giant building, the giant edifice, the architectural marvel to recognize that God was standing right in front of them. We can respond like them. We can respond like those who are too caught up with the trappings of religion to know what it means to truly serve the living God. It's one option. On the other hand, we could... Respond like the crowds. You know, the crowds who believe in Jesus because of the signs that he's doing, because of the stuff that he gives and does for them, who love the gift rather than the giver. Uh, Again, it's not a mistake that this passage is put right after the passage from last week. Because in the passage last week, when Jesus turned water into wine, one of the tragedies of that passage is verse 10, where the master of the feast says, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. If, as we argued last week, Jesus is the good wine, Jesus is the good life, that he is what he's purified the people so that they can have, what that means is that there are people who are so drunk and intoxicated and inebriated with the stuff of this world that they can't taste and see that he is good. In the case of both of these groups of people, you have the religious elite who are too intoxicated, too inebriated, too overwhelmed with the trappings of religion to recognize there's someone who can cleanse them, to recognize they don't have to wear the fig leaf of their own self-righteousness. That for the older brothers, that, that the older brother is too intoxicated and too drunk with his own pride to recognize that the greater brother is right in front of him. Or you could react like the crowds 
who are so overwhelmed and so satisfied and so intoxicated with the pleasures of this world, with the gifts rather than the giver, to recognize that the giver himself is right in front of them. You have those who correspond on the one hand to the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son and those who correspond to the younger and their response is both wrong because their response is rather than seeing Jesus, the great high priest, rather than giving him their fig leaves and taking his cleansing to hold on to those things that they think can really cover up their shame, but in reality is fooling no one, least of all themselves. You can respond like them. Or you can respond like the disciples. It says this in verse 22, When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. You can be cleansed, you can believe in him, which in this passage it's helpfully defined as receiving his cleansing, receiving his sacrifice, receiving all that he's done for us, giving him our shame, our brokenness, our sin, our guilt, and taking upon him ourselves his new garments. Which of these will you be? Will you be the older brother who is way too overwhelmed with stuff? with all the works righteousness and getting all the gold stars that he can and the checklist of self-satisfaction to recognize there's a greater righteousness in front of you? Or will you be like the younger brother who spends his life chasing after the things to the right and to the left until you realize that he is just eating slop in the pig's trough? To recognize that Jesus is right in front of them. Which response will you have? Will you be like one of those or will you be like the disciples who believe the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken? As we turn to apply this, I wonder, I wonder if you really have been cleansed. I wonder if you really have flown to the fountain wonder if you really have removed your fig leaf. Um, I've been told that sometimes when I reference C.S. Lewis books, people read them. So I'm going to give an easier C.S. Lewis book to read this time. Um, I love The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. It might be my favorite, one of the Chronicles of Narnia. Although the horse and his boy is pretty good. Anyways, in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, there is this brat. His name is Eustace. And that just, there's no Eustaces that go to this church. That is just kind of a, a bratty name. And Eustace, <laughs> Eustace is, he's just as grumpy, and he's kind of always being mean, and he's always picking on people, and he's always just kind of a, a pushing other people away. And, and with, his, with his cousins, he gets caught with Edmund, and, and Lucy gets, and Peter, he gets caught up into the, uh, Narnia to go sailing with Prince Caspian. And, and Eustace is complaining the whole time. He hates the whole thing. And, and Anyways, they get to this island, and Eustace goes off on his own, and he sees a dragon flying overhead. And so he, he, he goes and he follows the dragon, and the dragon lands on its hoard of gold, 
and it dies and uses like, this is pretty great. There's all this gold. I can just go up there and he goes up to the gold and he falls asleep on it. And when he wakes up, he feels this pain in his arm and he looks and there's a dragon arm right in front of him with the same gold bracelet that he had had on before. And so he tries to get until he realized that he's turned into a dragon. And of course, the whole thing is a, a parable because he was really a monster all along. And so he, he's flying around and everybody's afraid of him and he's trying to tell them that he really is, that it's the same person and, and it's really still Eustace. And they kind of come to realize and Eustace is all self-moaning and he's just self-pitying and self-loathing himself. Until one day he sees a lion. And the lion speaks to him, sort of, and he tells him to follow him. And the lion leads him up to this pool. And he, the, the lion tells him to get into the pool. And before you can get into a pool, you, you have to undress. And he's like, I don't know, how I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm a dragon, how can I? And then he's like, oh yeah, that's right, dragons are lizards, and lizards can shed their skin. And so Eustace goes, Eustace the dragon goes, and he tries to take his skin off, And he realizes that after he's molted his skin, he still has dragon skin underneath. And so he's scratching and he's tearing. He's trying to get the skin off. And each time there's more dragon skin. And he can't get it off. And he looks to the lion. And this is how the lion responds. Then the lion said, but I don't know if it spoke. You'll have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me be able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know if you've ever picked the scab of a sore place. It hurts like a billy. Oh, it is such fun to see it coming away. I know exactly what you mean, said Edmund. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had ever been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on. And he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why. I'd turned into a boy again. You'd think me simply phony if I told you how I felt about my own arms. I know they've no muscle and are pretty moldy compared with Caspian's, but I was so glad to see them. After a bit, the lion took me out and dressed me, dressed you, with his paws. Well, I don't exactly remember that bit, but he did somehow or other in new clothes, the same as I've got on now, as a matter of fact. And then suddenly I was back here, which is what makes me think it must have been a dream. No, it wasn't a dream, said Edmund. Why not? Well, there are the clothes for one thing, and you have been, well, undragoned for another. 
I wonder if you've been undragoned. If you've had the, the dragon's skin, the monster torn right off. If you've felt that pain that smarts like anything else go straight to your heart and cleanse you. I wonder if you have been purified by the blood. I wonder if you have gone to the fountain. I wonder if you have received Christ. I wonder if you've given him your fig leaf and taken his honor, taken on his new life, taken on his purification. I wonder if you've taken the white gowns of someone who's been undragoned. If you haven't done that today, I have good news for you. You can do that anywhere that you sit. Anywhere that you sit, you can pray right now and you can say, Jesus, take the dragon. Take it off. I want to be undragoned. If you want to talk more about what that looks like, I also have good news. I just made all of our members stand up. And all of our members know what the gospel is. And they would love nothing more than to share with you what the gospel is. So I would also apply this, this, that you and I, when we see the scales of the old dragon start to come back, we need to keep going to the fountain to be washed. Again and again, we need to walk in the light that we need to continue to confess to the Lord all of our sins, all of our wrongs, so that we can be made new, so that we can feel and receive the joy of our salvation. I'd also say this. Jesus purifies us so that we can be zealous like him. Jesus purifies us so that we can be zealous like him. One of the ways that I prepare for my sermons is I I have a book of the Confessions of the Reformation on my desk, and um, they have a great scripture reference on the back. And so I just go to the scripture index, see the way that the Augsburg or the Westminster of the 1689 uses uh, uses these passages, and they're they're unbel- it's unbelievably practical. They're it's such practical. But one of the things that the Westminster said, and I'm paraphrasing here, is it said that we should all pray for the same zeal that Christ has in this passage. This is something that we should be praying for that we would be as zealous as Christ is to purify the temple, to remove the sin from our lives. That we should have the same zeal that Christ does. Now I. I, I would like to describe it like this. Um, back in Indiana, where we pastor before we came here, um, it, the town was basically built on a swamp. And that's not an exaggeration. There was all these trees, and you, there, there was not really a good way to get rid of all the leaves and all the everything that would just grow, grow out of nowhere. So the only way that you, you could really get rid of it is after, after a week where it's been dry, for two or three days at least, you would just have to try to burn as many of the leaves as you could. But the problem is, because it's a swamp, it's all really wet. And so you can't really burn those leaves. They don't, they don't burn very well, so you've got to get lighter fluid. And so you pour the lighter fluid on, and it whooshes up, and it, and it takes uh, some of the leaves away, and then you get some more lighter fluid, and you kind of do that until, until it's tolerable for the next week. Is that the only way to take care of and maintain a, a yard like we had back in Indiana? Now, if you do that with your spiritual life, if that's the mentality that you treat your spiritual life, if that's how you build up zeal for in your spiritual life, you will go through highs and lows. You'll go up mountaintops and you'll go down into deep valleys and you'll just be pouring lighter fluid on it. But it's just not a healthy way to live the Christian life. 
for one thing, you always have to keep going back and finding more and more powerful lighter fluid. For another, it takes you so high, but then it takes you so low. So what you want in the Christian life is you want to build a good fire. You, you want to build a good fire. You want to get the logs, and then you want to get the kindling underneath, and, and the paper, and all the, the pine needles, and everything that makes sure it's dry. And then you light it, and you, and, and you kind of coax it, coax it until there's a nice burn going, and there's, em, it, there's embers that coat the fire pit. That's what you want for the Christian life. You want embers in the fire pit that you can keep throwing a log on. A slow and steady, consistent pace. Be happy when there's flare-ups. There's nothing wrong with the high experiences. But the day in, day out of normal biblical Christianity is what you're aiming for. You're aiming to have embers in the pit. Embers that can burn, that can burn red hot so that you're zealous for the things of the Lord. Now, I do also want to add this, just because of the way this, pa- this passage and the other temple cleansing passages gets used. This is zeal with control. This is zeal with control, the zeal that Jesus has here. This is zeal that, Je- notice how Jesus doesn't just strike the whole mountain with lightning. This is zeal with control. Sometimes this passage gets used to justify all kinds of foolishness. All kinds of, I'm a man now and I'm just going to be a man and turn over tables and light things on fire. And I get it, but that's not how this passage is meant to be used. The, the, the zeal that Jesus uses here, that he models here, is zeal with control. And so, and so if you want to have the same zeal that Jesus does, that doesn't mean being able to, be, uh, to let your anger get out of control from time to time. That doesn't mean letting the fire break out and burn down the house. This is zeal with control. This is not a a, a zeal that boils over and consumes everyone else around us. This is is not a, a kind of anger that harms those who are most in harm's way. This is an anger that is righteous. There's nothing wrong with righteous anger. This is a zeal that is called for and it's necessary for the occasion. But it's under control. If you think that you're being like Jesus and you let your anger burn down your house, then I'll just tell you, you need to read this passage again because Jesus is precise and he's careful and he's intentional. This is a zeal with control. If you're here, and I have just described you, here's what you need to know. Jesus can take that away too. Jesus can take your anger, and he can cleanse it, and he can purify it, and he can make it into an instrument of righteousness. Jesus can take your hurt and your pain. He can, he, he can take away your overreaction. He can take that away and he can cleanse it and make it new to serve the Lord. There is no person this side of glory who has outsend the grace of God. There's no shame which is so deep that the blood of Christ can't reach it. And there's no one who is so broken that they can't be made new. There is no dragon so wretched, no monster so 
dark that Christ can't undragon them. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you sent someone to undragon us, to purify us, to cleanse us, to take away our shame, to make us whole. Father, we thank you that you want us to be zealous and red hot for the things of the Lord. Father, we confess, I confess, often my anger does break out, destroy the whole town. But I thank you that your son is not afraid of that. And that he can purify that. And he can cleanse it and make it too whole. So, Father in heaven, I pray now that as we prepare our hearts for the table, that you would purify in us our consciences, that we might enjoy, enjoy all that you have for us in this moment. So it's in the name of your Son that we pray. Amen.